Hello, and welcome to Hear From Her podcast by the Women's Economic Council. We're a Canadian nonprofit with the goal of attaining economic security for every woman and advancing women's community economic development to improve the lives of women, their families, and their communities. We've got an exciting episode planned today with your host, Sara Abdelshami, and the wonderful guest, Cora Voyager, discussing Indigenous economies and Canadian Women's History Month. Stay tuned. Okay, so hi, Cora Voyager. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode on Indigenous Economies and Canada's Women's History Month. My name is Sara Abdelshami. I'm the Communications Coordinator for the Women's Economic Council, and I'm super excited uh, to have you here. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your work? Okay. Um, my name is Cora Voyager. I am um, a member of the Athabasca Chipoyan First Nation from Fort Chipoyan, Alberta. Um, I'm a Dene woman, and I come from a long line of uh, leaders um, in uh, in my community. My great grandfather signed Treaty Eight for us, and um, my family was in hereditary chieftainship from when the treaty was signed in 1899 to 1985. I'm a sociologist at the University of Calgary. I've been here. I'm in my 25th year. Um, I trained at uh, the University of Alberta. And I uh, am also a residential school survivor. I'm a mother, a grandmother, a wife, and uh, very uh, happy to be here today. Thank you so much, Cora. Also, the 25th uh, year of teaching, that's such a milestone. Uh, congrats on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, thank you for sharing a little bit about yourself. So as you know, this month is, Canadian, is Canada's Women's History Month, which is long hailed to be a celebratory month where we honor, commemorate and celebrate Canadian women who marked history. And, you know, this is always a little bit complicated because, you know, Canada is a settler like colonial nation and has enacted countless harm um, on Indigenous communities from the very inception of it um, to mm -hmm. obviously still to today, specifically mm -hmm. to Indigenous women. So. Mm -hmm. You know, in residential schools and, you know, in terms of forced sterilization, you know, Indigenous women were really targeted. And so there's a bit of an irony there when we think of, you know, celebrating Women's History Month. It begs the question of which history and which women. Maybe we can talk a bit about mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I... Um, I, I'd like to go back to the very beginning of, of Canada. We know that... Um, in my community, Fort Chipoyan, that our historical record in that region goes back 13,000 years. So um, when we talk about Canada, that is, you know, a mere 155 years old, that this is not very, you know, it's not very long um, in, you know, the grand scheme of things. And prior to, you know, our confederation, um, we, uh, as Indigenous women, were very um, present and very active in the formation of what was to become Canada through our role in the fur trade 
and how women were instrumental in, you know, helping the European traders prosper. Uh, not only, you know, were we, you know, the wives um, of these, uh, the fur traders, but we also had our community connections. We knew the language, we knew the culture, we knew the territory, and we basically opened up the doors for the um, European male traders, um, you know, for anybody that wanted to be successful in the fur trade had to have, um, you know, an Indian woman on, you know, in their lives. But also, you know, if we look at things like, you know, the Mackenzie expedition and, and whatnot, uh, there were Indian women that traveled along with uh, the expedition and, you know, served as, as cooks, they hunted, they I believe the estimate was that they made 600 pairs of moccasins for all of these, um, these explorers. So we're very, very um, present. And Unfortunately, when the European women um, came over, uh, in many cases, um, we were called country wives and, you know, we were tossed aside in favor of, um, of European women that were much more dependent, uh, much more pliable. We know that uh, Indigenous women um, were very independent. And um, so anyway, that was the, you know, a very sad situation where, you know, uh, you know, European men would bring their cousins over and marry them, and you know, the indigenous women and and uh, their children were were uh, moved out. So that's going back to the beginning of of uh, history um, of our you know of our contact with with um, Europeans, but also you know there have been other you know, mistreatment of Indigenous women. Uh, forced sterilization was something that you mentioned earlier. We know that in Canada, in Alberta, where I live, that we had a eugenics uh, policy on our books um, prior to um, uh, eugenics in, in Nazi Germany. So people that were of European um, heritage, those that were poor, those uh, women that were rural, and Indigenous women were the ones that were most likely to be um, involuntarily sterilized in, um, in Canada. There has been research done, I believe, uh, Senator um, Yvonne Boyer, a uh, Métis senator, uh, is involved in that research project. So this is something that is uh, unfolding as we speak. So, you know, even in my own family, we had women that were um, involuntarily sterilized. And this uh, process um, or procedure was, um, you know, went into the 1970s, which was not that long ago. So, um, you know, this is something that, you know, we as Albertans should be very proud of. And, you know, the unfortunate part of this, and we talk about the famous five, you know, we're talking here about the person's case and how, um, women had to be uh, declared persons before they could, um, you know, sit in the Senate. And Emily Murphy was someone who was very much supported eugenics. So on one hand, we have someone who is 
you know, supporting eugenics, but, you know, treating women very badly. And, um, you know, and she was always, you know, she was also racist and talked about, you know, the, the yellow peril and, you know, the harms that were being, um, you know, done to, uh, to Asian women uh, as a result of, you know, basically racist attitudes. So, you know, on one hand, we're celebrating the famous five, but, you know, they didn't really support anybody who wasn't, um, you know, a white woman. Thank you so much, because this is so important and really is at the crux of it, right? Like when we when we think of, you know, Canadian history, we don't think how in Alberta, I think it was 1972, right? That uh, until 1972, that yeah. eugenics was, yes. um, you know, legal, quote unquote. But even those mm-hmm. those labels of what's legal and what's not was kind of being bent and being warped to fit into their own agendas. Um, and there was even a eugenic boards, um, a Canadian you know, yeah. eugenic boards, um, you know, mm-hmm. and they had their personal agendas of like um, what they they wanted Canada demographically to look like Europe um and so you know actually they wanted they wanted Canada to look like Britain we are meant to be a little Britain and you know with (laughs) the Ukrainian settlement that came in because you know they had done these farmers tours that uh you know trying to woo um Western European and uh, British people to Canada when that, you know, ran its course, then we had to go to Eastern Europe, you know, they weren't very happy about, you know, bringing in the Ukrainians, Mm. but, you know, we had to, you know, fend off annexation and that type of thing. So again, you can see that Canada has this very racist um, history that, you know, is starting to raise its ugly head again. Mm-hmm. You know, we always look down our noses and, you know, look down to the US and, oh, you know, we're not like that. Well, you know mm-hmm. what, we're very much like that. Definitely. And we think about, you know, the people that were treated so badly in Canada, mm-hmm. um, you know, over the years, you know, the Ukrainians who were hardworking uh Farmers mm. who basically, you know, helped settle the West. Um, you know, Chinese men that were brought over to work on the railroads and they were made all kinds of promises mm-hmm. that they could bring their families over, bring their wives over. And essentially this grew into um, a society of, of bachelors because they were not allowed to bring their, their wives uh, and families over. And, you know, the racist head tax and then the stop. Um, stopping of any immigration from from China, you know, the internment of the Japanese, Mm. you know, Polish, Italians. I mean, we just, you know, it's like everybody had their chance of, um, you know, being the whipping boy in Canada. Mm. So this is something that, you know, is, is, you know, we don't really, we don't really like to think of us ourselves in that manner, but this is how it is. Yeah. And I I love that you also like, you know, you started with how uh, Indigenous women were central to kind of developing the early economy and the fur trade. Mm -hmm. And then you also mentioned, you know, uh, Ukrainian farmers and Chinese uh, workers who were kind of brought in to to work on the land and do this manual labor on false promises. Uh, Just like, you know, when Indigenous women were helping with the fur trade, you know, there were false promises Mm -hmm. that were made about sovereignty, about independence that were not met. Um, So what do you feel like is the role of the economy, uh, 
as a way to both you know, momentarily empower and then use that empowerment to almost immediately disenfranchise communities. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, there is a book um, and, you know, all of the racist attitudes that are held about, um, you know, Indigenous people that we're not, you know, we don't work and we're a draw on the economy and all of this kind of stuff, which really is not true. And, you know, as a, a professor, I mean, I started teaching as I was a as a graduate student, and I've been here at the University of Calgary um, for 25 years. So I've been teaching in the university system for 30 years. And, you know, I've seen changes over, uh, over time, some good, some bad. But with the, um, the work of Indigenous women, we know that if we were to look at the national occupational codes, that we are going to find that Indigenous women are more likely to work in the sales and service industry, which, of course, is, um, you know, generally, um, you know, not very well paid, not, you know, prestigious and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but what we have found over the past, you know, maybe 40 years or so, is that Indigenous women and Indigenous men, to a lesser degree, um, are um, going into post-secondary uh, education and going into it in a big way. And we're seeing that Indigenous women are starting to um you know, get university degrees. And we're doing this because we have a very high uh, rate of female headed households uh, in the Indigenous community. So as women, we have to get better paying jobs, you know, the tertiary uh, positions in, you know, being chambermaids and waitresses and whatnot, just doesn't give you enough money that you can support your children. So, um, with women, we uh, actually one third of our Indigenous female workforce uh, is in finance and administration. So we are, you know, we're really coming on strong. And again, it takes, uh, you know, a bit of a, a paradigm shift in mainstream society to realize how uh, competent we are, how hardworking we are, how qualified we are, that we have merit because we have uh, spent that time uh, getting our um, getting an education. And we have to also remember that as First Nation people, that uh, there was a time that um, if we got a university degree, we lost our Indian status. So, you know, it, you know, I know there's a lot to unpack here, but um, I did a study um, a number of years ago that looked at uh, entrepreneurship amongst Indigenous women in Alberta. I interviewed 50 women, and of these women, only one um, uh, continued a business that was already established. So these women were starting up, they were startup organizations. All of these businesses were self-funded, so there was no money from the government to help these uh, help these women. There was very um, a, a vast array of um, of women, and the highest grossing um, 
uh, income the year prior to this study was a woman who ran a construction company and who grossed uh, $3 million uh, the year before. So if you juxtapose that to the kinds of jobs that you know we as Indigenous women do in our um, um, as our work, um, we made almost three, the women in the study made almost three times on average what um, a woman um, in the service industry would make. I think this is a very important point because the, like you said, the economy always kind of like been used as a way to repress people right like they Mm -hmm. place barriers to make it impossible for people to be to economically prosper um, and therefore it makes it difficult for communities to prosper and then they use these statistics as a justification for you know racist policies yeah yeah you know the interesting thing is is that most under the rules that we have now and the qualifications that we have now for immigration most canadians would not qualify to come to canada so if we look at who is and of course refugees that's a completely different story but if we're looking at who is immigrating to our to our country we really we need immigration we need immigration and what we are doing is we're basically skimming the cream of um, of you know mother countries to bring people who are educated, people who have qualifications and not that we make it very easy for immigrants to to work here, but we need immigrants and immigrants are more likely to be entrepreneurs just as indigenous people are more likely to be uh, entrepreneurs. Um, at um, a rate one and a half times that of mainstream society. So with immigration, we are uh, bringing in people who are already educated and they can come to Canada and they can start working right away, start paying taxes, Mm. they open businesses, they have employment opportunities for people, and they also buy houses. So Mm. they are helping our community, helping Canada, and actually the last uh, census um, was the first time in our history. This is from the uh, 2016 uh, census because there was just one last year. So the 2016 numbers, this was the first time in Canadian history where we had more deaths than we had births. Wow. So unless we continue uh, allowing um, immigrants uh, into our country, and of course, we're a country of immigrants. I mean, everybody who is not Indigenous came from someplace else. Yeah. So, you know, to, you know, slam the door on on immigration is not a good thing. It's not mm. a smart thing. Yeah, absolutely. I you really hit the nail right on the head. And, you know, us at the Women's Economic Council, we have various, you know, entrepreneurial programs to help uh, women entrepreneurs, like, really kick off their businesses and their startups. And like you said, most of these women, you know, and we, I think this was for the her own boss, you know, it was in Alberta, in Newfoundland, um, Ontario, BC, and Quebec, you know, um, less so in Quebec, where, you know, but in those provinces, it was mostly all immigrant woman who, you know, had this ambition and this um, vision for an entrepreneurial dream. And when you looked at it, when it really, what it really boiled down to was that there was a lack of 
institutional support and that was their barrier uh, because mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. had the everything you know they had the skill they had the experience they had the vision um, sometimes even the financing but not all the time but there was always just a structural barrier to uh, the economic sovereignty of women in Canada most of whom like you said are immigrants yeah yeah absolutely and you know there were times and it, not in the so distant past where uh, if women wanted to start a business, they had to get their husbands to to co-sign for them. Yeah. And, you know, this is, like I said, this isn't that long ago. So, you know, those structural and institutional barriers uh, that are set in place can be quite detrimental. Mm. And, you know, if we were to look at, and I mean, very shortly after the, um, after Confederation in um, 1867, uh, the Amalgamated Indian Act, um, uh, you know, was created in in 1876, and with that, it really changed the uh, rights, and you know, it changed the society within the uh, First Nation community in that it gave men more power than they would have normally had that you know women um you know in many cases were decision makers were able to you know control the economics within the community uh they were able to to choose leaders and gave government you know bringing in these um ideas, the ideology from Europe where, you know, men were in control uh, in the the public sphere and women were, you know, in the private sphere. Mm. And that we lived under this, um, you know, under these rules for a great number of years. And as a First Nation woman, we are still governed by the Indian Act. So, you know, and the preference that was given, the paternalism in within the Indian Act has been detrimental uh, to Indigenous women. But, um, you know, having said that, you know, there are still, you know, very many, um, you know, very successful uh, Indigenous women. I was just absolutely over the moon about two weeks ago when the uh, new governor general came to Calgary and I was able to go to her talk. I was just elated. And, you know, we now have uh, the... Um, first uh, Indigenous uh, Supreme Court uh, judge, uh, a woman from Quebec, Michelle Obamsawin. We have Roseanne Archibald, the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. So women are really, really, um, you know, on fire in in Canada. Yeah. And I love that you, you know, are mentioning so many women because there's also like on the on the other hand, there's like this notion or this misconception that you know kind of like you said this uh, racial stereotype that you know indigenous mm-hmm. people don't contribute to the economy and yet you know indigenous women specifically have been driving the economy not only since canadian economy was a thing but even just to this mm-hmm. day right and at the highest yeah. uh, but you know there is um you know, there's, there's, you know, a number of myths about, you know, Indigenous people and, um, you know, myth busting is, you know, kind of what I do. Mm. And one of the things is, is that, you know, we don't contribute to um, the economy. There's a couple of uh, situations. One is there was a report done by the TD Bank that talked about the contribution of um, 
Indigenous people to uh, to Canadian society. And what they found was that after the transfer payments, and of course, everybody gets transfer payments in Canada, whether you are uh, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, you know, the money flows from the federal government to the provincial mm-hmm. government and whatnot. So anyway, after the... Um, uh, the transfer payments for First Nation people uh, come from Ottawa that we uh, contribute $11 billion uh, a year into the Canadian economy. Wow. So an excess of $11 billion a year. The other study was done by a fellow by the name of Gerard Duhem uh, from the University of Laval. Mm-hmm. And what he found was that for every dollar that goes into the Indigenous community, $7 comes out into the Canadian economy. And of course, this has to do with resource extraction. My own um, traditional territory as a a member of um, the Athabasca Chippewyan First Nation uh, in um, northeastern Alberta, the Great Canadian Oil Sands is on our traditional territory. So, you know, and we talk about, you know, the ring of fire and, you know, other, um, you know, very expansive uh, resource developments, Foises Bay, for example. Uh, This is all Indigenous territory. So, you know, we're kind of driving the uh, economy, you know, and we're the ones that have to deal with the issues around pollution and, you know, water degradation and all of that kind of thing. So to say that we are not contributing is simply not true. Yeah, and, you know, I wanted to also point to the fact that right now um, the coastal gas link um, in uh, Mm -hmm. BC and Wet'suwet'en land is being built, even though, you know, it's the pipelines and it's affecting food sovereignty. And it's that is actually affecting, you know, um, the Mm -hmm. Canadian economy in a very real sense. Um, because it's affecting the waters, it's affecting the air, it's affecting, you know, um, food, you know, this is a source of salmon as well. Absolutely. And, you know, the water level, actually, CBC did a, um, a segment last week, that was talking about the, the um, low water levels in our area, which is the um, Athabasca Delta uh, in northeastern Alberta, and the fact that this is the largest freshwater delta in the world, and that the water levels are are very low. And um, so, you know, like we're impacted by by all of this. But, you know, we know that, you know, Indigenous people are very um, willing and able to um, go into business uh, partnerships with mainstream companies, with the government and with Mm. with others. And in fact, we also uh, invested in uh, a pipeline. So, um, you know, the idea that, you know, we're not, you know, really part of the economy just simply is not true. And, you know, I speak to, I speak to government, I speak to, um, you know, community groups, I speak to unions. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, you know what, racism is costing you money. If you're not going to look at, um, you know, a source of of workers, um, and we know that the Indigenous community is uh, is very young. These are the people who are going to be supporting our social safety network in the future. So, you know, this is something that, and we have to change our attitudes. Absolutely. 
Couldn't have said it better. Um, so the last question is, you know, if you can speak about an Indigenous woman that you feel like should be celebrated in this month's uh, Women's History Month. Well, you know what? There are so many Indigenous women that, mm. you know, really deserve recognition for for the work that they do, you know, nationally, internationally. You know, I can think of, um, you know, off the top of my head, uh, an Indigenous lawyer um, who is from Saskatchewan, but who has lived in Alberta for decades, a woman by the name of Sharon Van. She has worked um, with the uh, in, uh, the Indigenous group uh, with the UN for decades. There are other, you know, politicians, there are artists, there are writers, you know, Louise Half, for example, um, uh, a lady who passed uh, a number of years ago from the Fort McMurray area, um, Dorothy McDonald, who was very instrumental in, you know, looking after the environment. Um, so, you know, you can just, you can just kind of pull them out of the air because there are so many women who are really making a difference in, uh, in our community. Uh, Pearl Callahan another politician who has worked very hard and very diligently for Indigenous people. She is an educator. You know, there's a number of women uh, working at the Faculty of Native Studies. There have mm. been a number of, um, of Indigenous women hired here at the University of Calgary uh, under their cluster hires. So, I mean, there's a lot of hard work being done by um, by Indigenous women. And, you know, most of us just put our heads down and just get the job done. Yeah. And, you know, I I'm, I will take the, a second to also um, shout out um, Ellen Gabriel, who um, is from the Ganiga Aga Nation and, you know, was one of the spokesperson during the Oka crisis um, in 1990. And she's an artist and she's done amazing, amazing work in the community. She's done a lot of community organizing. Um, so yeah, there's so many, like you said, um, I love that you didn't even just say one indigenous woman because often we also get into this habit of, you know, getting the one indigenous person and then, you know, but mm -hmm. the idea is that indigenous women are everywhere in Canada and they owe their contributions yeah. are endless. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think the thing is, is you know, one thing that I, I really think that we need to address is the sexualization of, mm -hmm. uh, of indigenous women mm -hmm. and the idea that, and I know for myself, I mean, I'm an old grandmother now, but you know, that wasn't always the case, but you know, it was really, it was really difficult because, you know, this hypersexualization and this idea that, you know, that we're just available anytime, mm -hmm. anywhere. And I know that this sounds pretty crass, but this is a situation that, you know, indigenous women have to deal with, mm -hmm. um, you know, with this idea that, you know, we're, you know, just, you know, you know, sex objects and, and that kind of thing. And I think that this ties into, you know, the idea of um, and helps perpetrate, um, you know, murdered and missing Indigenous women. And the Definitely. idea that, that um, we are, um, you know, somehow responsible. Like Joani talks about um, the um, worthy victim and the unworthy victim and the idea that, you know, we're being portrayed as sex workers and living a transient lifestyle and mm. living a, rif a risky lifestyle that, you know, somehow we deserve to, to uh, be murdered.
Mm-hmm. And it's really a, a telling thing in our society where, uh, you know, we as Indigenous women are eight times more likely to be killed by a stranger than mainstream women. And that's something that we have to really look at. And, you know, with the number of women um, that, you know, we're talking about now, if we extrapolated that number to mainstream society, uh, that would be 18,000 women. So if that were the case, you know, there would certainly be alarm bells um, Mm. going off. If we were, you know, 18,000 nurses were missing or 18,000 university students were missing. Mm. That would be an issue. And that would be something that our government would really want to know about. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so this is, this is something that I think that we really need to address. Absolutely. And it goes back to, right, like this colonial need to create the perfect victim, the perfect Indigenous person to celebrate, and the perfect Indigenous person to scapegoat, right? Um, and are like, the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, and going back to racism, which seems to be the elephant in the room, mm. that we're thinking that, you know, and, you know, I, I've had, um, you know, I've had situations myself as an educated woman mm. having to, you know, fend off advances and, and whatnot. And what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been married for just about 40 years and we still have these, you know, men thinking that we're, you know, out on the yeah. make. I mean, absolutely. And um, I guess, you know, to answer the uh, which women should we celebrate for Women's History Month? Um, it should mm-hmm. be all Indigenous women because um, we've got a lot of reparations yeah. to pay and that goes to even just uh, recognition and acknowledgement and as well as material repatriation. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, if I can just say one more thing, uh, Gilchrist did a study of the media's portrayal of Um, missing and murdered Indigenous women, and then also juxtapose that to mainstream women who were murdered. Mm. And the the portrayal is stark, and it's frightening. Mm. Thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate it. I've learned so much from, from you just, uh, you know, hearing you speak and all of the information that you've given us. Um, It's been very, very um, helpful and uh, yes. Happy Women's History Month. Thank you for joining us, Ken and Koa. And thank you. Okay. Um, It's my pleasure.